Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. So it is great to be with you this morning and always a blessing to be um, given the opportunity to, to look at God's Word with you. And so if you'll just go ahead with me and turn um, to Genesis chapter 3. And we're still, uh, still working through Genesis chapter 3. And can I just ask you to stand with me as we read from the Word of God together, please? We'll start at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we know, Lord, that you tell us that just as the rain falls to the earth and waters the ground and accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, so does your word come and it does not return to you void, but, Lord, it accomplishes the purpose for which you've spoken it. And so, God, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts. We ask that you would give us understanding to the seriousness of our condition apart from Christ and our desperate need of a Savior this morning, Lord, whether we are in Christ already or whether we have not professed him as Lord, Lord, I pray that he would be increasingly precious to us and, Lord, that you would give us a great hunger and thirst for righteousness and for truth. And we ask that you do these things for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we've uh, progressed through these opening pages of Scripture, penned by Moses originally to the people of Israel, as they were no doubt preparing to enter into the promised land, we've seen the breathtaking beauty of God's creation as he speaks all things into existence. And it is as though the overflow of God's power, the overflow of his glory, the overflow of his splendor is poured out upon his creation. And... We come to the sixth day and God creates his most glorious thing, his most glorious creature, which is man and woman. And to this man and woman, he gives them not only dominion, but he gives them the privilege of being made in his image, of representing him on this world that he has made. 
And we see that God provides them, provides for them abundantly in a beautiful garden with food and provision. He gives them the responsibility to fill the earth, to multiply. And the Lord God even provides for the man uniquely creating a wife, a helper for him, that he would be, uh, he wouldn't be alone, but have a companion who is like him, made in the image of God. But it's almost as though we, we just start to grasp the beauty of what God has made and suddenly we are shocked with this stranger that enters into this garden, this creature that we've not heard of before, this serpent who comes into God's garden and addresses the man and the woman. And so last week we saw the four tactics of the serpent that he, he tries to undo God's order. Creature coming to the one who's been given dominion coming to the woman instead of the man whom God had placed as the one primarily responsible. We saw him attack the character of God. We saw him give Eve a contrary word to what God had said, and he holds out to them empty promises, which is what the serpent continues to do to the people of the world. And so this morning, I want us to look at the devastating fall of humanity, the the reality of what happened as Adam and Eve responded to this temptation. What is, the, what is the outcome of their choice for us and for them and for the rest of humanity? And so, kind of broke it into three phases that, that the man and woman go through, three phases of this fall that I want us to see this morning. And you know, we, we, uh, we're all aware of much of the, the problems and the evil and the sickness and the death and the crime that goes on in our world. And I think every generation tries to answer the question, what is wrong with humanity? What is our problem? Where does this evil come from? And while many have given various answers throughout the ages, we as Christians believe that God reveals to us in his word the truth of what has happened. And, you know, you can look around and it's, it's easy to, to point fingers, right? We, we look out the window and we see disease and crime and hatred and greed and lust. And we see that happening. We see wars and rumors of wars. And, 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 but then when we're honest and we're, we're still before the Lord, we realize that those very things lurk in our own hearts. That I myself battle pride and anger and hatred and covetousness and depression and greed and on and on. These things are lurking within me, if I'm honest, before the Lord. Where does this come from? We could look at creation and we see that there is great beauty and splendor still that remains in God's creation. The trees and the birds and we got a chance to go out to Figure Eight Lake a bit this past week and you see the eagle out there fishing and the, the osprey fishing and then they start fighting. You know, it, there's great splendor. But then also when you look closely, there is also something very wrong in creation. There is disease. There is death. There is sickness. There is corruption. There are animals that kill other animals. There are insects that kill people and spread plagues. And you ask the question, what is wrong? And for the, the evolutionist, they just simply answer, well, we have not yet evolved to a place of perfection. We just need a little bit more time and things are going to get better. We're going to get over this step of evolving. 
But the sad reality is that as many thought that the turn of the 20th century would be the golden age for humanity, that finally we have come to a place where we could battle disease with our technology, that we have become civilized and no longer would we kill, no longer would crime be on the rise, but we would see these things diminish, that humanity was coming into this golden age. We look back over the past hundred years and we realize that actually our technology and our knowledge and our wealth has really only enabled us to further increasingly do evil. Thousands of infant children are murdered every day in North America in the name of choice. And we see very quickly we are not entering into a golden age. Something is desperately wrong. And even for the evolutionists, they have to acknowledge, um, even like the second law of thermodynamics, which says that, that things are going to increasingly deteriorate. It's not going to naturally move towards order. It's going to move towards disorder. And that's what we see. There's not an increase towards order and, and beauty. It's rather a deterioration. And you know that if you, if you fail to plow your fields for a few years or your garden and, and very quickly you'll be overtaken by weeds. So what is our problem as humanity? What has happened to us? And we see this morning that the, in these three phases of what happened in the garden, this condition that we have of, of our fallenness. And so if you look with me, um, you see that after the serpent had tempted Eve and and lured her that we have Eve's response for us. And so the first phase I want you to see is this deadly desire of Eve. Is, is, it rises, this deadly desire, this seduction that Eve gives herself over to. And we see it in verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she has this, and, and, and if you want to just turn with me for a moment, because there's a parallel in the New Testament, and I think when you see it, it's pretty clear where John, what, what John is referencing in 1 John, right to the end of the Bible almost, 1 John 2, and uh, verse 15, and in Always keep in mind when you're reading the Old Testament, the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament, right? And we, we sometimes forget that, that sometimes in the Old Testament we're struggling with something, but if you look through the New, they often deal with it. And so look what John, say, John says in 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And you have this threefold attack upon humanity. You have, as John says, the desire of the flesh. And you think back, Eve, we're told in verse 6, she looks upon this tree that is forbidden to her by God and she sees that it is good for food, this desire, her stomach. She says, this looks good to eat. I want that fruit, even though God has said they shall not eat of it. 
We see not only the desire of the flesh, but the desire of the eyes. You could say even the desire of the emotions. She emotionally wants this fruit. It is appealing to her very emotions. And, and as John says, it is, it is not just the flesh, but the desire of the eyes. And she sees that it is beautiful. It was a beautiful tree. We often think the tree was an apple. Um, we don't really know what exactly the fruit was. Um, I don't know how the apple got kind of labeled as the, the forbidden fruit, but we're not sure what this fruit was other than it was forbidden to them by God. And then John says, and also the pride of life. These things come against us. And so in the same way, Eve not only looks at this and says it looks good to eat, that she desires it, it is beautiful, but she also wants the wisdom that the serpent has promised by eating it, that you will become like God. You will be able to determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. And if you're still in John, you can flip back a little bit to James, because James gives us this very helpful description of what happens before we sin, before we actually act upon our sin. What is going on underneath all of that? And James 1, just a few books back well, from uh, 1 John, James chapter 1, verse 13, James tells us, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this is not God's doing in the garden. This is not God tempting Eve to eat of the forbidden truth. He established the commandment and the covenant, but it is the devil who has the one doing the tempting. So John says, don't ever think that it is God who is the one authoring the temptation. Yes, the serpent operates under the permission of God in that sense, but it is not God who is doing it. And it is, the, in this case, the serpent. And so then James goes on, not only we're not tempted by God, but he says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so often we think of Adam and Eve's disobedience, we think of it as just the act of taking what was forbidden to them and eating it. But really, I think sin entered into the heart of Eve prior to that, that she began to want, to lust after, to, to want what was forbidden. And as this desire, as James says, takes root in her heart, it brings about the action. It brings it about. And Sadly, often in our culture, in our society, all of the problems that people want to say that mankind has is external. It's always circumstances. Somebody kills someone, well, maybe they were bullied as a child. Maybe they were mentally unstable. Maybe they hadn't had their breakfast yet, right? And we, we just excuse sin away. Maybe they missed, you know, they were waiting too, li- too, too long in the lineup at Timmy's and, and, you know, they just couldn't take it anymore. And so that's why they did this evil thing. And while we can be affected by circumstances, we need to realize that is not primarily the problem. It's not where the problem begins. It is an internal issue. 
It is this problem of sinful desire that rises up in our hearts and it entices us to then act upon it. This is why Jesus would say in Luke 6.45, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you have a problem with your mouth, you don't need a muzzle. I mean, I mean that might be a bit better for those around you, but it's not going to take care of the issue. Even to have your, your tongue removed wouldn't take care of the issue. It is a heart condition. And as these vile things come out, it is from within your heart that there is this sin, this evil from which our actions flow. And so, even when we think about, and I know, and I know this is a, a sensitive subject, but even when we think about medication and its place in helping us to cope with various things, whether it's anxiety or depression or, or uh, sleep, I mean, any number of things, I think there is a place where medication can be helpful, but don't ever think that is the primary um, problem. It needs to be done in a way that you're looking to deal internally as well. And, you know, and I, I dealt a little bit, um, had a family member go through some, some mental illness stuff, and, and medication served a role in that, but the goal was to, to try to come off of that, to deal with some of the heart issues that were going on. And so we need to keep this in balance. Jesus would, would tell the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. And so let us not be absorbed with external repairs upon ourselves. We're not just good people doing bad things. Right? If, that's, if that's the condition, then yeah, then all we need is a bit of, you know, renovation, maybe some counseling. But if we are internally evil, then what we need is a new nature. What we need is a new heart. We need a new set of desires, which is what the scriptures teach us. And I know we're jumping around a bit, but I just want to go to Romans 6 for a moment because there's something helpful here. And, and we think about how do we battle this. Okay, so we know that, that our problem is not merely external. The problem with my lust, the problem with my pride, my anger, my greed is not simply a problem of external things, but internal. So how do then, do, as, as Christians, do we go about finding victory over these things? How do we begin to fight the sin that tries to destroy us? Paul tells us in, in Romans 6, he says that in, in verse 7, for one has, who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, Romans 6, verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We sang that this morning, didn't we? That he has conquered death itself. And he says, he says that for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 
the way to begin to find victory over your sin is to begin to realize that Jesus Christ crucified it on the cross. And so as you are faced with the temptation and you feel that desire rising up in your heart, I want to look at the pornography. I know it's wrong. You said, you know what? Christ has died. He has crucified the power of this sin in my life and it has no hold on me. And you count yourself alive to Christ and dead to sin. And as that begins to happen, it's power is broken. But you must realize it is an internal battle before it is external. As we go through these same things that I think Eve goes through, this, this phase of the desire, and then as that begins to rise, as James says, it conceives and it gives birth to sin. And so we will see that in a moment in the, uh, in the second phase. And We'll talk a little bit about this at the very end, but as Christians, when you begin to realize our condition after Adam and Eve, this this place of death, this place of internal evil, this sinful nature that we inherit, you begin to realize that our only hope is exactly what Jesus said in John 3 when Nicodemus came and said, how do I... Uh, he didn't actually ask the question. Jesus just knew what he's thinking. How, how, how do you get into the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? And Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You need a rebirth, a recreation of your desires. The very core of who you are must be changed. And that is what conversion is. And so somebody might talk of being a Christian or profess to be a Christian or come and get wet in a tank of water and yet their life never changes. There is no reason then to assume they are a Christian because this rebirth has not happened. And just as our sin is not only external, salvation is first and foremost an internal transformation of the heart. And so we must declare war on it by the power of Christ And as John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so we declare war, not on our own strength, but by the power of God through the gospel and through the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his spirit whom he's given to us, which is this very nature of God, the spirit of God within us. And so that's the first phase, this this deadly desire that rises in Eve's heart. And the second one we see is very quick. We don't have a lot of description in the narrative accounts. They they often linger over the conversation and then the actions are very quick. And uh, you see that here is in the book of Genesis. We're told what happens after Eve. This desire rises. She has the, her eyes see it. It's beautiful. She wants it for food. She wants the wisdom that the serpent is saying she will receive. And then we see what happens In in verse 6, we're told that she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her. And so the second phase is the act of disobedience. The desire gives birth to use James' imagery, which is maybe a bit graphic for us, but this is, sin is graphic, and so sometimes those type of languages help us realize the seriousness of this. And we just see that she She allows this desire. She hears the voice of the serpent. She believes what he's saying. She takes the fruit. She bites it. And she hands it to Adam, who was with her. And there's a lot of questions that people have on this section that we just really don't have answers for. 
Um, was Adam directly beside her, or did she go over and get him? Um, how did that look? We're not sure exactly. Um, was there a conversation between Adam and Eve? Why did Adam do it? We know from, from Paul in uh, 1 Timothy 2.14, he says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it seems that Adam, um, Eve thought she was doing mankind a favor. She thought that what the serpent had offered was good, and she was going to bless her husband with this wisdom and becoming like God. Adam, we're told, was not deceived. So I think he willfully disobeyed, for it was God himself who gave Adam the command in chapter 2, verse 16. So there's some questions that we just really don't know the answers to, and um, all kinds of strange theories come up. You know, people want to make it into like a, a Romeo and Juliet moment where Adam realizes what his wife did, and he doesn't want her to face God's wrath. And, you know, if, if, if you're going to die, then I must die because I can't live without you. And they want to make it into this romantic thing. But that's not how the scriptures speak of it. Adam is guilty. He is guilty for his sin and his breaking of the covenant. And in fact, um, I know I got you moving around a lot, but go back to Romans, if you will, just for a moment, because this is so important as we think about what the effect of this moment, this brief moment, this simple biting into a forbidden fruit, what is the effect upon mankind from that moment? Paul tells us explicitly in Romans 5, 12, he says in Romans 5, 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, and we see him later, he would, in verse 14, just say Adam. He's talking about Adam. And, and Adam then stands as the forefather, as the head, as the federal head of humanity. And what he does affects all of his offspring so that everyone that would come after Adam is born into his rebellion, into his sin, against God. That's why David would say in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't have to teach our children to do bad things, do we? We don't have to instruct them how to hit their brother or to talk back to mommy and daddy. That comes very naturally to them. The reason is because we are all born into this state, this rebellion of Adam and Eve into this fall. Now, you might ask the question, well, how is that fair? How is it fair that, that we all are caught up in Adam's transgression? You know, it's like the parent who's not sure who broke the window and so all the kids get in trouble, you know? It's like, that's not fair, we would think. But the good news is that just as Paul will go on to say in verse 15 of, of Romans 5, this is good for us because what it means, in verse 15, Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Having Adam's sin imputed to us, his guilt, is bad news. 
But it's glorious news that in the same way, Christ, one man, can stand and give himself a ransom for many. He can become the righteousness of billions and billions of people. And so we see what Paul is doing is he is preparing us to understand the gospel. And all stemming from this moment in the garden when Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they bite into which God had forbidden them and they cast themselves into a place of death and separation from God. And that's the second phase. We not only have the, the deadly desire of Eve, we not only have the act of disobedience that they, they give themselves over to, but then we thirdly and finally have the reaping of the consequences, the effects of their disobedience. And we see again, the, Moses writes for us what happened immediately after they ate of this forbidden fruit. We're told that then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they began to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And then as they hear the sound of God coming to the garden to fellowship with them, to commune with them, they do not run towards him as their friend, as their creator. They flee away from his presence and they try to hide in the trees of the garden. And so we have all these external things happening, right? We see all these very strange behavior In the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed in their innocence and beauty. Now they're hiding, they're covering themselves, they're fleeing away from God. And we will see in, in a moment that they will begin to blame one another. The marriage relationship is shattered and the man and wife turn on each other as a result. But what has happened? And we know it. From the New Testament, again, as, as, the, as men like Paul write about our sin, we begin to understand that the ultimate thing that happened is not just spiritual here. There is, or sorry, not just physical here. There is a spiritual change, a casting into darkness, a spiritual death. For a long time, I struggled with, we know in, in chapter 2, God promised um, a consequence to Adam if he ate of the forbidden fruit. If you look um, back just a moment in chapter 2, verse 17, when God establishes this covenant of life with Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree and to enjoy the garden, to enjoy his fellowship, but to not eat this one commandment, he gives them the promise, he says, that for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so here in chapter 3, we have them eat of the fruit, and yet they're still standing. And you think, well, is God like a parent who threatens his child? You know, and I'm guilty of this. Like, if you do that one more time, then then you're going to be in time out. Okay, this is the last time. I'm not telling you again, right? And we do that with our kids, and we threaten, and and we don't follow through. And, And you would look at this and say, well, is God threatening and not following through? He said they would die, and yet now they're standing, and they're clothing themselves. What, what has happened to the promise of God's judgment? And as we come into the New Testament and the writers explain this to us, and as we saw, there is a spiritual death that happens. And all of this strange behavior of Adam and Eve is flowing from this condition of death that they are cast into and that we are born into. We are born spiritually unable to respond to God. It's not spiritually um, crippled. It's not spiritually wounded. Dead. Spiritually 
dead. And, and we could go to any number of places, but um, perhaps Romans 3 is one of the most common that we know. And even as James said that the, when sin has, when the desire is conceived sin, sin, when it is fully grown, produces what? What does the sin produce? Death, right? And that's exactly what we find has happened to Adam and Eve. There is a, play, a condition of spiritual death that comes upon humanity. And Paul tells us that this isn't just one race, one color of skin, or anything like that, but rather it is the entirety of humanity. Paul tells us that in, in Romans 3.11, that no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we know we quote Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we have this condition upon humanity. And this is so important that you understand this whether you're raising children, whether you're battling struggles within your own heart, whether you're praying for a, someone who is apart from Christ and you desperately want them to respond to the gospel, if you do not understand this condition, you will not understand the gospel. You will not understand how to battle sin. You will not understand the basis of evangelism. Because you see, if we are spiritually dead, if we are like Ezekiel saw in, in Ezekiel, where the valley of dry bones, if, if that is humanity spiritually, then what we need is not a little fixing up, not a little makeup, not a little fine-tuning. What we need is a resurrection from the dead, which is why Christ had to come. We needed a resurrection, and we can't do that. I can't resurrect my boy spiritually. So what do you do? You share the gospel, the message, the power of God, which he uses to breathe life, which he uses, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, just as God spoke, let there be light, so he has shone into our hearts with the light of the gospel. And he says to the dead man's heart, let there be light, and we rise up from the dead, and we look, and we see Christ as glorious, as beautiful, as our Savior. And it is a miraculous work of God. And so, pray for me. Preaching, it can be one of the most difficult things and that I know as I stand here and I speak, I am absolutely powerless to help you in and of myself. And if I forget that, then I begin to do you a disservice. But if we pray... And we seek the Lord and we say, oh God, would you have mercy upon us? Would you have mercy upon our children? Our neighbors need you. Would you use us? Breathe life. And it is God who must work through the gospel. And so you must understand this condition that happened upon humanity, the state of death that we were cast into. And our only hope is one who can cause us to be raised from the dead. And in closing, just think for a moment. Uh, we don't tend to think a lot, even in this instance, with Adam and Eve fall. There is an angelic host watching. 
There's an angelic host watching this unfold. And they had gone through a fall similar because we see this fallen angel in the garden trying to lead humanity in rebellion. And as the angels look upon this man and this woman, this speck of dust on a speck of dust, and they see them break the commandment of God, just as the angels had done, they are crying out condemnation, condemnation, condemnation upon the man and wife. They must die if God is just. You can imagine the hosts of heaven, creation itself, crying out the condemnation of this man and woman for their crimes against God. But then something unspeakable happens. God, the judge, the righteous one, comes into the garden, slays an animal, we'll see at the end of the chapter, clothes the man and wife in the garments of that animal, and gives them a promise of one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. And you could imagine the angels seeing it looking like, what? just happened what is god doing why are they living and of course physical death would come quickly for adam and eve as they watched their son murder their other son in cold blood but the fact that the human race is here today is due to one thing and that is that jesus christ offered himself to go into the world, become a man, take upon the the wrath and the punishment that the man and woman deserve, that we deserve, take it upon himself on the cross so that we could be forgiven. The grace of God. You can imagine the hosts of heaven as the Son of God embraces his Father and goes down onto this little planet Earth and he enters the womb of a virgin Mary and he is born and he grows to be a man and the the God-man goes to a cross where the very creatures he made beat him, mock him, spit upon him, nail him to a cross, whip him to the point of death, and then to see God the Father pour his wrath upon his Son. How, we're told by Peter, the angels long to look into these things because they just don't understand it. And so, Don't despair in your brokenness. Don't despair in your struggles. Don't despair in your pain, in the disease, in the wars and rumors of wars, but rather look upon Christ who came, took upon himself our dirty rags of filth and vile and wretchedness and was punished by God in our place. And then as he rises from the dead, he says to us, anyone who will come and not take of a forbidden fruit, but rather Jesus would say, take and eat my body, which is broken for you. Take and drink my blood, which has been poured out for you. And so all that you must do is not clean up your life, is not figure out a way to overcome your bondage, but look upon the Lord Jesus and be washed in his blood, in his forgiveness, be brought from death to life. And you can sing like the psalmist in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And may that be true of you this morning. And I pray if you are a Christian, declare war on your sin in the name of Jesus Christ, and 
pray that the Lord would be pleased to raise up many who are still lost in the darkness of sin. And if you are not in Christ, I plead with you to hear my voice and look upon him who was slain for your sin and be raised from the dead. Walk in the newness of life. Be filled with his spirit. Sometimes we ask my boys to do something and they're like, I don't want to. Well, they're absolutely right. They don't want to and that's the problem and I can't change that. Now, you can discipline them and try to give them a new want to, but ultimately... What we all need is a new want to, a new set of desires, and that comes through Jesus Christ. He takes out that heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, and then the command to you is not only to repent and believe upon Jesus, but come and be baptized as a way of saying to this congregation, I am following Christ. I want to be buried in the death of Adam, and I want to rise in the life of Christ. And you come in obedience to Jesus, and you are immersed in the water as you are immersed in his in his death, and then you are raised as a way of saying, I want to rise with Christ. And we look unto the final day when he comes, and he will judge the nations. There will be retribution for those who will not come to him for forgiveness. But may that not be us. And may we plead with those around us and plead with our Father in heaven that many be saved in Fairview and Grimshaw and Peace River and Whitelaw. And may we just... Plead with God to to move through us. Let's pray together, and I'll ask the ladies to come back. Lord God, we do often forget your kindness shown to us, Lord. We know that as much as our pride might think we would have done a better job in the garden, Lord, I think when we're honest, we know that we may have not lasted as long. But God, we we are amazed at your kindness towards us, your mercy, your patience, God. Your name is blasphemed every day and yet you hold out the invitation to come and be clean. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond with repentance, with a zeal to live as Christ and to seek his righteousness. And Lord, we pray for the salvation of souls, that you would use your word to raise many from the dead. And Lord, that you would get the glory and praise through us. And as we give of our tithes and our offerings, Lord, that that would be a token of our appreciation, an expression of of your love poured out and, and just the returning of ourselves to you for your kingdom work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.